What's going on, incredible podcast family? What a privilege and honor to be back with you again. Holy smokes, I have been down the rabbit hole. I thought I was out, but I'm right back down there again. I need to do a solo podcast just in all the uh, amazing things I'm discovering. There, A lot of their t- are terrible things. I have seen a couple positive uh, things come out of this and maybe some positive solutions, but definitely a lot of uh, nonsense, misinformation, misdirection, psychological operations, and all that stuff. Um, for those of you guys who don't know, I spent a long time learning about hypnosis, uh, psychological warfare, because I didn't understand why we had war and starvation and kind of figured that stuff out. So I have an ability to read between the lines and look at the propaganda versus the truth. And man, there's a lot of bull crap going on out there right now. But anyway, we have a fantastic episode of the show for you today. We have Arielle Garten on. She is a neuroscientist, psychotherapist, and co-founder of Muse. Uh, this is an amazing episode. We discuss a lot of important topics right now. We talk about uh, a little bit of brain science, the prefrontal cortex, a uh, uh, benefits of meditation, how that works as far as brain science goes. Uh, We talk about breath, triggers, the work of heart math. We talk about what the pandemic is teaching us, the habits of family, fear, sleep, and so much more. So this is a fantastic episode. I know that you're going to enjoy it. If you want to support the show, please go over to patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair, toss a buck in the bucket. Join the academy, which I just launched some epic new meditations, some binaural beats, and some brainwave and entrainment music over there it's amazing stuff that alone is worth a few hundred bucks and uh, you can get it free with your access to the academy just go to bit.ly forward slash mind body spirit 21 and if you need a discount uh, let me know let me know what you're willing to pay just like on patreon would love to have you as a member get your feedback and you also get access to the soul compass course exclusive training and some other courses and programs in there so there is a ton of value for you. I'd also like to announce a new partnership sponsor with Purium Superfoods. I'm so glad to be back with them. I was a partner with them for a little bit, about six months or so, a couple years ago after I interviewed the founder, Dave Sandoval. And since then, they've been really just upgrading and improving and really staying uh, full of integrity and making absolutely phenomenal products. So they reached out again. And actually, it was at a time where I was really looking more into nutrition and gut health because of some of the podcasts I've done with Dr. Will B. uh, Bolsowitz, I think it is, if I'm pronouncing it even close. Cyrus Kambada, uh, the work of Dr. Zach Bush. If you haven't heard him speak, I hope to get him on the show soon. He's really amazing. And uh, the, the company's amazing. And you're going to get a free uh, $50 gift card if you use the code Optimize Health. So you can go to bit.ly forward slash optimized health with a D. And that'll take you right there. But the code is Optimize Health. And uh, or 25% off your first order. They're all non GMO photo nutrition for optimal athletic uh, performance, gut health, sleep, energy. Every product has been clinically uh, tested and uh, really the highest level of scrutiny for non-GMO natural products from farming to everything. You know, all my friends have have looked into it. uh, They vouch for it. And uh, I started using their products again because I really wanted to increase my energy, my clarity, because I've been struggling a little bit with that, um, with all this research. And so, so really excited to have them on. So go to bit.ly forward slash optimized health and then optimized health use that code and you'll get uh, $50 off and you will or or 25% off your first order so stoked to have them on Um, and that's it make sure you do three kind acts a day Uh, go out of your way to do it that's the best way to support the show and so before we dive into this amazing episode let's come to a state of peace and coherence so wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing taking a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath And just let it out slowly, filling every cell, every muscle, and every fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, energy, enthusiasm, clarity, and ready to take on this amazing episode with Arielle Garten. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is probably one of the most interesting people you will meet. She is a psychotherapist, neuroscientist, mom, former fashion designer, and the female founder of the visionary of an amazing and highly successful tech startup, Muse. Muse tracks your brain during meditation, 
to give you real-time feedback on your meditation, guiding you into the zone and solving the problem most of us have when starting a meditation practice. Muse lets you know when you're doing it right. When she's not reading brains literally or investing in inspiring and advising other startups and women in biz, you can find her on stages across the world from TED to MIT to South by Southwest. She inspires people to understand that they can accomplish anything they want by learning what goes on in their own mind. She is also the co-host of the Untangled podcast. Welcome to the show, Arielle Garten. Thank you. It is a complete and total honor to be here. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so happy to connect. Uh, As we were saying before we jumped on, I've actually, I have a Muse. I've been in the Muse headquarters. We've had Chris Amony on the show before. He's a friend, uh, amazing human being. And I just love what you guys are doing. Your background is so diverse. And I think it's so important to keep piling on and adding the science to why meditation and mindfulness practice is important. And so um, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background, your amazing journey and how you got to where you are today and working on all the amazing stuff you are? Sure. Uh, The journey was a completely fascinating one. I I don't know if Chris told you in your episode, but we began working with this technology, uh, brain computer interface technology in the early 2000s. And Chris at the time was uh, Steve Mann's master student. Steve Mann is the accredited inventor of the wearable computer. He invented Google Glass before Google did, and he and Chris were working on essentially Google Glass in the early 2000s. And they had this early brain-computer interface system where you would put a single electrode on the back of your head, and by shifting your brain state, focusing, relaxing, you could make something happen. So we all began collaborating in ways that we could take what was inside of our head and actually impact the world around us. And we started by creating concerts where 48 people at a time would slip on an EEG electrode and by shifting brain state could actually change the music that you were hearing in the room. We were literally letting people adjust sound based on what was going on in their own mind. And then from there, we did this incredible project at the Olympics where people in Vancouver could control the lights on the CN Tower, the Canadian Bar Buildings, and Niagara Falls with their brain from across the country. So like literally people would be sitting in Vancouver at the 2010 Winter Olympics with an EEG headset on, controlling the lights on the CN Tower by focusing or relaxing by shifting their brain state. From there, we all turned to each other and we're like, this is extraordinary, but how do we really change people's lives in a tangible way with this? How are we really going to make something that is going to make the world better? Like, it's cool to make music with your brain. It's cool to be able to change a light, but um, how is this really going to help people's lives? And at the time, Trevor, our third co-founder, was a practicing Buddhist. Um, Then the three of us, Chris, Trevor, and I went to a conference called Wisdom 2.0, and it was in probably its first year. And then the light bulb went off in our head that we had a way to really show people what was going on in their brain during this incredibly important and incredibly intangible experience called meditation. And if we could turn this technology to allow people to actually hear their brain state, whether they were focused, whether they're relaxed, where their mind was at in the process of meditation, it could make it tangible and actionable. And in that way, get more people meditating and make the world a better place. That's amazing. I do remember the Olympics and, and him explaining that to me. And I think it was privately before the podcast. And I was just like, how the hell did you do that? Like, what kind of mad science are you working on? Um, it's really amazing stuff. And I love your intention of saying, how do we use this to help people? I know, and I know that Muse has gone through, through the growth curve of any tech startup, you know, and committing to what you guys are doing to get the word out there and meditation. And you've done an absolutely extraordinary job. I don't know how many people use the Muse or how many people have been inspired to start meditation because of Muse. And like you said at the beginning, and I get this all the time when I coach people is like, I don't know if I'm doing it right. And it just takes that out of the equation. So you know exactly that you're doing something. And that's why people, you know, when they work out, they say, oh, you know, I can feel it. My body hurts. I'm running. I'm tired. I can feel that. And so when you're working with something like the mind and the brain, and you would be able to speak on this much better than I would, but how the brain changes and how you can influence the brain in states of being through these types of practices. But the challenge is 
it's hard to measure. Like whether I'm doing a kettlebell swing or if I'm doing deadlifts, I can measure that all in weights. And what the Muse does is it gives you a way to measure that. And so maybe you can speak on that a little bit. How Muse helps you measure the brain? Is that what you want to know? Yeah, how it measures the brain and also some of the neuroscience to why meditation is beneficial. I know that it is for millions of reasons, but maybe you can share for you some of the most um, impactful studies or research that you know about why a person should encourage mindfulness. And I'll just add the caveat to a lot of the people coming on the show recently are suggesting mindfulness practices to deal with the fear. And I know you talk about that as well. And so maybe you can just kind of dive into that a little bit as well. Sure. So how Muse works is it is an EEG headband, the same technology that you have in a research lab, and it tracks your brainwave activity. And we're able to know when you're in focused attention and when your mind is wandering. So it translates the activity of your brain into guiding sounds. And the metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when you're thinking or distracted, you actually hear it as stormy. Here is a Muse. So there are sensors here on the forehead and other sensors behind the ears. And it slips on just like a pair of glasses. Um, I only have one hand at the moment. And then it is able to actually know when you're in focused attention in your meditation zone and when your mind is wandering. And then after the fact, you get data, charts, graphs, scores, things that show you what your brain was doing moment by moment. There's a ton we can talk about the muse and we can dive more into it later. Um, but if you wanna dive into the neuroscience of meditation first, um, shall I take you into your brain on meditation? Ha, yes, please. <laughs> okay. So in a meditation practice, there are a number of areas of the brain that are actually working. So meditation and actually changing and shifting throughout the course of your practice. Now, in a standard focused attention practice, it's as if there is a relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala that's kind of like a parent-child relationship. So the prefrontal cortex is the area at the front of your head over here. It's the part of your brain associated with planning, with um, organization, with attention, and with inhibition. Now, in studies of long-term meditators, it has been demonstrated that your prefrontal cortex thickness, the amount of volume in your prefrontal cortex, can actually uh, be increased through a meditation practice. So in one study by Dr. Sarah Lazar, she showed that a 50-year-old long-term meditator didn't suffer the same change or thinning of the prefrontal cortex that you would expect with an with a older individual, but their prefrontal cortex was as thick as a 23-year-old. So meditation strengthens the prefrontal cortex. Because this is the area of the brain associated with attention, planning, and decision-making, it's also the part of the brain that's associated with wisdom. It's the part of the brain that allows you to survey a landscape, to rise above it, which is something you're doing in meditation. You're doing an active metacognition, observing what's going on inside your own mind, and then make wise decisions. It is able to make better decisions than the amygdala, which is the part of the brain in the center of your head, above your ear over here, that's responsible for freaking out when it sees danger. I say freaking out when it sees danger because that's what it often does. So the amygdala's job is to scan the environment constantly and look for things that could be dangerous for you. And these could be minor dangers like tripping on something. It could be major dangers like a viral pandemic. It could also be perceived dangers or ego dangers like somebody who you think is looking at you the wrong way or traffic or any of these things that our amygdala responds to because typically it's rather idle. Not these days. These days it's hyperactive. Now, your amygdala's response is really helpful to you the first time because it alerts you of danger. But when you've now deemed something to be not necessarily dangerous to you, your amygdala doesn't necessarily stop. It will continue to present that information over and over and over again. Like when you're stuck in traffic and you can't do anything about it and your amygdala keeps saying, you're in traffic, you're going to be late, you're in traffic, your boss is going to be bad, you're in traffic and, and keeps presenting this information over and over. So as you engage a long-term meditation practice, you're actually strengthening the relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala so that the prefrontal cortex can come in and actually downregulate the activity of the amygdala. The prefrontal cortex can receive the information from the amygdala, do its own scan of the environment, take in all the information, make an assumption or assertion about what the actual right action is and the right state to be in is, and then communicate back to the amygdala to say, it's okay, it's all good, 
we got this. Or it's okay. There's nothing we can do right now. Let's put on a podcast and just enjoy sitting in this traffic for a few minutes because there's no other option. So in a long-term meditator, what you see is not just a decrease in the activity of the amygdala, but in some long-term meditators actually decrease in the size of the amygdala and an increase in the neurons that project from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, allowing the prefrontal cortex, the parent, to regulate the amygdala, the child who's having a temper tantrum. That's amazing. I love all that. And you know, you brought up a couple of points that I think are really important, especially at this time. And also you have a background um, as a psychotherapist. So I think that's even more important. The big thing I see now and what we're facing is fear and fear in general. When I have um, guests on the podcast who have had extraordinary healings or doctors or whoever the case is, they just talk about stress as one of the main reasons why the body goes into disease. So if you want an extraordinary healing, you know, you're going to need to get rid of that stress. And even if you have um, persistent, regular, you know, everyday stress, right? You, you have that, um, that loop firing that says, oh, fight or flight, fight or flight, fight or flight. And these micro um, kind of signals every single time throughout the day, you're going to end up having disease in the body. And that's how many people in the world live. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about um, understanding fear, because especially with what's going on in the world right now, it is actually something that we can be afraid of. You know, it's like there's a legit risk. But if you look at someone like a Navy SEAL or a first responder or something like that, it's a calm, cool mind that's going to get you through a hairy situation. You know, I know from extreme sports or things like that, if things go sour, you know, it's yes, the danger is real, but it is your attention and your focus on what the solution is that's going to get you out of that hairy situation. If you start to get really afraid, um, your body doesn't react the exact same way. And I know that these mental loops of fear, even when there's nothing to fear, um, a lot of people experience that. And so maybe you could share a couple of techniques on how people might be able to break those mental loops of fear and just your perspective on fear in general and how somebody might navigate the situation we're in right now. Sure. So the situation that we're in right now is a real one and there are reasons to feel afraid but it doesn't mean you need to feel afraid all the time. So fear is there to warn us of when there is a problem and there is a virus that's moving around outside. However, that doesn't mean that your fear needs to be triggering all the time. And that can be very, very difficult to tease apart. So I went through this you know, personally as soon as I started to realize I'm, I'm in Toronto, my mom's in New York City, was in New York City. And as soon as I started to see what was happening in early March, um, I became very afraid for my mother. And, you know, the anxiety just kept looping the, your mom needs to get out of New York now, get out of New York now. And I, I let that loop go. I, I listened to it. <laughs> it. It wouldn't stop. I took action. I, you know, got my mom out of New York City. She's in a farmhouse in Connecticut. Um, and as soon as I did, the loop stopped. And within my own home, I actually spent a lot of time reinforcing my feeling of safety. And it might seem crazy to reinforce feelings of safety at a time we're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, but really in my home, I am incredibly safe. And why am I safe? Because we take the necessary steps. So, you know, you disinfect things when they come into the house, you wear a mask when you go out, you stay six feet away from people. And as you do these essential proactive and logical steps, I have trained my body and my mind so that they can be calm because I've done these things. I don't need to live in a state of anxiety at all. And so I actually spent a long time within my, initially I'd spent a long time inside of my meditation practice, focusing on the thoughts that come up that are fearful and allowing them to let go. And focusing on the bodily sensations that came up that were fearful, acknowledging that they're there and that I did not need to get sucked in by them. So the fear loop, what happens is your amygdala labels something as fearful. It then generates thoughts around it, fearful thoughts. It also generates fearful sensations in the body. And when they're strong enough, we feel them as anxiety. Now, because your body is feeling this fearful sensation, it becomes a signal to the mind that something is wrong. So we're continually linking between mind, body, mind, body, and checking back and forth. So if your body is ramped, your mind will say like, oh, there's an alarm bell, the body's ramped, there must be something wrong. And it'll generate thoughts about something going on. Those thoughts will then generate more sensation in the body, which loops forward to the thoughts, which loops forward to the body. Now you are on a feed forward anxiety cycle. 
What you want to be doing, if you're finding that anxiety is not serving you, is to intervene on both levels. You want to be able to let the thoughts know, hey, we don't need to be spiraling on this right now. It's not serving us. And you want to let the body know, hey, let's breathe deeply and change the relationship, the physiology of our body to signal safety. Now, how you do the mind part is through techniques that you learn in meditation, um, like a focused attention practice where you, when you have a difficult thought, you focus on the breath, you let the thought go, which can be harder than you think. Um, but with repeated practice, you can spend time out of your wandering thoughts and into something neutral like your breath. So every time the thought spikes, thank you, I see you, all good, thanks for the information, back to your breath. Thought spikes, let that one go back to your breath. And as you do this, your prefrontal cortex is signaling to your brain where it's actually important to put your, your attention, where your intention is lying. And your intention is to be not spiraling these thoughts, but here in the present moment. And then with your body, you're taking deep breaths. So as you breathe in and breathe into your belly, you're actually triggering your vagus nerve to move you into the parasympathetic nervous system, into the rest and digest response and out of fight or flight. Your uh, vagus nerve is the nerve in your body that runs all the way from your neck down into your stomach. It's actually attached um, around your abdomen. And as you breathe in deep, through your belly, you're triggering, you're literally tugging on that vagus nerve and increasing what's called vagal tone to now signal to your body that it can relax. And so along with that relaxation comes a dilation of your blood vessels, increased blood flow, decrease in cortisol levels, and a slowing down of your heart. So deep breaths are a really important physiological trigger to demonstrate to your body that you're in calm. And there's another cool thing that happens when you breathe. When you breathe in, your heart rate increases. When you breathe out, your heart rate decreases. That's called your sinusoidal arrhythmia. And with an extended exhale, you're spending more time in a slowed heart rate. So that's why breath patterns that are often recommended for anxiety are breath patterns where you might breathe in for four counts and then breathe out for six or eight counts. With Muse, we also have uh, breath sensors and breath programs, and we teach you the four, six breath. And as you spend longer in the decreasing heart rate, you're again signaling to your body that it's okay to slow your heart rate down. And along with it comes all of the physiological responses of being in a slower heart rate. Again, rest and digest, dilated blood vessels, relaxed body, relaxed tone and state. So these two loops, the thought loop and the feeling loop, the, the mind loop and the body loop, are both points of intervention with different meditation techniques that slow the entire system down and allow you to be more present. That was phenomenal. So well said. I love just listening to that. Um, okay, so the way that I've understood it when I'm kind of talking to people is that let's say you're going to go do a backflip. It's the easiest way that I understand how from extreme sports background. But if you're going to go do a backflip and you keep thinking of all the ways you're about to mess yourself up, you're going to land on your head, you're going to go to the hospital, all these different things, the chances of that happening are increased because you're nervous, you're not in a powerful state of mind, um, and you're increasing the probability. So the first thing that you need to do, as you mentioned, is to catch those thoughts. Just just be aware of, whoa, I'm, I'm in this mental loop right now. And one of the most empowering things that I've done as a practice is to then ask myself, so what do I want? So if I feel afraid and then I, I can register that, I can look around. And like you said, you do the basic things that are precautionary. Is there a reason that uh, I need to be afraid right now? Is there something that uh, is endangering me? Am I safe? And so you can say, you know, I want to feel safe right now. What What ways might you feel safe? So as you switch your attention, you're going to switch your state and doing it through breath is a very empowering way. And I'm really grateful for you sharing just the background science and how the, the mind works, because a lot of people don't really have these tools. You know what I mean? They, they get stuck in that state and they're unable to kind of break that pattern and they stay in that state and they might stay in that day state for 30 minutes, for an hour, for a whole day, uh, sometimes for months at a time. And so what you shared, I think is incredibly empowering. And what I'm curious about is what do you think the limits of consciousness and spirituality and mindfulness is? Like when I look at the work of Dr. <laughs> Bruce Lipton, you know, he's talking about how we can use our consciousness to turn on and off DNA and integrate with the cells. Dr. Joe Dispenza is using, a, um, you know, trying to bring science into how people are having these spontaneous healings through meditation. Then you think of um, 
whatever you want to call them, say yogis like Yogananda from Autobiography of a Yogi, or people talk about Ascended Masters. And I've kind of traveled the world trying to find these people. You know, if Jesus Christ is here, I'm going to, if I hear something like that, I'm going to try to show up. I'm going to try to interview that guy. I'm going to try to see if he's legit, see if he can do those things. Um, and the closest thing that I've witnessed in the world is been Shaolin monks um, that, you know, one of them in particular could break uh, stone with two fingers. He could smash bricks over different parts of his body. And when I looked at the practice and I interviewed him, it was actually an integration of mind, body, spirit. Um, there was an intensive Qigong practice, and that was understanding the energy system, the inner engineering of the body with also intense, absolutely nutty physical training of punching trees. I had to punch trees, I had to kick trees, and they had dents in the, in the holes in the trees. And so, wow. And then if you look at someone a little bit more grounded that, uh, you know, everybody now knows is Wim Hof and that's a breath technique. And he's, you know, showing people that you can literally cure yourself of, of, uh, um, what did he give himself like a flu or a disease? And he was able to fight that off. He's able to set all these world records of things that we think are impossible. And you say, Hey, this is just a breath pattern. You have that power too. And so when people like Wim Hof are doing things like that, and I've observed the Shaolin monks do things that you really shouldn't be able to do. Um, but you know, he, he also said it was years and years of practice. I'm curious your thoughts being a grounded scientist, looking at the data, looking at how the brain works. What do you feel the limits of our potential are in mind, body, spirit? Oh, wow. Okay. I, I don't have a good answer for that question because science has not yet described these limits. Science has only described what is tangible and what is knowable. And it is very, very poor at describing anything outside of the, the current limits of our knowledge or our understanding. And so I don't think we can use science to answer those kinds of questions. We can use the empirical evidence of you know, the, the examples that you've given. But I don't know that we know what the limits are. And if you go into, you know, what Joe Dispenza describes, certainly I believe personally in the kind of healing that you can do when you're able to shift your own physiology and get out of the negative persistent limitations that you in your own mind put on yourself. So a friend of mine has healed himself from stage four cancer um, and he did that through a very rigorous mental practice where he confronted all of the things in his life that were creating shame. And there was a story from his early life where he was ostracized in about grade six and it was very shameful for him. And it was, it was a serious ostracization. He was sent away from school, he was suspended. Um, and once he was able to clear through that, clear through the implications that it had in his life and, you know, layer on hundreds of hours of healing practices, he is stage four cancer, went into remission and has been probably for the last decade. Um, and there are many stories like that. Um, and certainly folks like Joe Dispenza aim to teach you about the ways in which we can overcome our body. A lot of the kind of practical ways that you think about how that might be do be working have to do with the reduction in your um, limbic activity, in your amygdala activity. Um, uh, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, the amazing TED Talk on um, the woman who observed her own stroke, she had a left brain stroke. Her entire left side was, you know, flooded with blood, damaged. Um, the doctor said, you know, she would never recover. Well, it turned out that she was in this feeling of extraordinary elation, this feeling that we describe akin to meditation where she felt connected to the oneness of the world. She felt an incredible just peace and okayness because her left amygdala and her left limbic system was also obliterated. And in a working theory that she has, the left limbic system, the left amygdala, is associated with uh, linear and often negative negative and fearful thinking, and the right is associated with positive emotional thinking. And what happened to her, in, in, in one theory and in her theory, is that she, when you let go of all of this left negative thinking, you were left with a state of connectedness, oneness, and okayness, her body and mind was able to regenerate much faster. 
And in a short period of time, over eight months, she was able to regain significant amount of function in a way that shocked and surprised her doctors. And, you know, the function just continued to increase. Now, over time, as her left brain came back on board, her thinking became much more ordinary. Um, And she too was, you know, bothered by the vagaries of our day-to-day lives that we get caught up in and frustrated by. But she will always reflect back on that time in her life in which that left amygdala functioning was shut down, in which she was in this beautiful euphoria and in which her body was able to heal in extraordinary ways. So, you know, we can look at these, you know, seemingly miraculous healings and miraculous things that happen, we can think about them from an energetic perspective, which we don't know, science doesn't have a lot of good things to say about yet. I mean, they're amazing things to say, we just don't know what they are yet. We can think about it from a metaphysical or a physical perspective in which we can think about, you know, um, quantum theory and how that might be acting. But but again, we, we don't know, they're all just theories. Um, we can try to think about it from a stress cortisol amygdala perspective. And we can think about it from a psychotherapeutic perspective, which probably comes back to, uh, you know, a, cortisol amygdala perspective. Um, and we can start to see that, you know, we see the evidence that these things are happening. These, these amazing humans are able to do amazing things. And we can take little pieces of their practice into our daily lives and start to, to taste them and feel them. And at the very least, know that there is an opportunity for us to continue to transform into a human, like a personal human, a self who is one thing now and, and can be slightly different the next moment and the next moment after that, and as a society. And I think when we look at the pandemic, it has given us an extraordinary opportunity to transform as a society in ways we haven't yet recognized. Um, again, very beautifully said. What it makes me think about is, um, have you, I'm curious your thoughts on um, the Global Consciousness Project at Princeton and the idea of the noosphere or this, you know, uh, morpho- morphogenetic field that we're all connected. And mm-hmm. some people have said the theories that, you know, if, if a certain amount of us meditate on peace, then we could shift the energetic frequency of the planet. I don't know if there's any science to that, but I know that um, I interviewed a physicist, Damien LaFont on, and he wanted to test that theory with um, big soccer stadiums in Europe. And he was actually getting, um, some good leeway from the governments to try to test that. So everybody is in this massive soccer stadium and ideally as many people as possible. And you might, you know, start doing some tests. Maybe you project good thoughts onto one individual who has an illness. Maybe it's just planetary um, peace or something like that. And I like what you said at the end there that this pandemic does give us an opportunity to look at what we're doing as a society and a culture, because what I hope it does is it connects us as a humanity And one of the examples I've brought up time again is that we have 9.1 million people die of starvation each year. Yeah, it's sad that, you know, people are dying from this, you know, no, but we don't want to die. But why is it that we don't have the compassion as as a culture or as a world uh, entity to look at these, you know, grave humanitarian problems that we have and why are there not systems in place to help these people? You know, what is it that we need to do? What is it that we need to overcome? What conversations do we need to have? Um, What ways of thinking do we need to um, adapt to kind of look at this? And I do think from the people that I've talked to that this does provide an amazing opportunity for us to reflect on our own lives and what we're doing. And uh, also as a global humanity. And I'm curious your thoughts on just the the hive mind because i've seen uh, i guess hive mind isn't the best way to put it but i've seen a lot of group meditations come up and i'm very curious it, uh, what your thoughts are are on on that if it holds any weight scientifically or just from your personal view so i was part of uh unifies meditation um on well, it was three days ago from from the day this is being recorded and at 10 45 p.m Eastern Standard Time, there are about 20,000 people meditating simultaneously. Um, I think there were some scientists who were trying to see what the impact might be, um, whether there is a shift in heart coherence, which is something that HeartMath loves to look at, um, whether you could see any shift in anything around the world. And the data on that is not yet out, but that will be you know, one of the larger of such experiments at any moment in time. So we're all very, very curious to know whether we are all physically connected or or metaphysically connected by some force that allows us to move the world 
or we are simply emotionally connected to one another and the recognition of the impact that we have in one another's lives. Either way, it gives us the opportunity to affect change by our own personal action. So I think one of the extraordinary things that the pandemic is teaching us is that one person can affect the entire globe. You know, one person who is infected, who then breathes on someone else, who breathes on someone else, spreads country by country by country, and the entire world is at a standstill. And I think the reason that this is finally so impactful is because everybody feels threatened. When we look at situations like poverty, certainly it's direly sad, but the people who have the opportunity to do something about it do not feel personally threatened by it. And so this becomes an extraordinary moment to build empathy when everybody in the world feels personally threatened by something that they may or may not have control over. And from this moment of personal threat, with the recognition of the global threat that everybody's feeling the same way at the same time, we finally have a piece of capacity to reach out to one another and to do something about it. I think this is going to be an extraordinary shift in global consciousness if, if we allow it to be, if we don't allow things to go back to the way they were before, if we're able to create you know, structures and ways of thinking and feeling that are easier now than they were before because you can feel it and touch it and taste it in a new way. So I think you know, the opportunity for global connectedness, whether uh, physically, metaphysically, or simply emotionally is, is at an all-time high. And I, I sincerely hope we can harness the power of that. Yeah, I agree. I love that idea. Um, one of the examples I'd like to shout out there and, and hope for is like Team Earth. You know, what if Team Canada and Team USA and Team Russia and Team Japan, we all work together on global issues. You know, we set aside the difference in, in maybe um, beliefs um, and we just work together, you know, in, in some sort of resonance and some sort of harmony. And it doesn't require our government's cooperation. We can do that as individuals. Um, we don't need we don't need anybody's right to cooperate with another human being on a project of service to humanity. We can do that on our own. We can um, be the example we want to be and kind of make that impact that we want to make. And I think that we make it possible when we do it together. When we kind of I had I've heard this thing recently was like you know and it's everywhere in spirituality, but service to other over service to self and, you know, service to your community. And obviously you want to be taken care of, but it's like, how can I support my community? How can I support my neighbors? How can my life support the world? And if we all think about that just a little bit, it doesn't have to be everything that you do, but even a little bit, you know, we have an opportunity to shift a lot here. And what I'd like to ask is if out of this pandemic, things changed in a way that you could kind of write on a chalkboard and you know, you're over there at Muse and probably at your house now, but um, I don't know if the whole company does this, but I've never seen somebody take the information. We worked on a, a project together and the way they took the information out of my brain and put it on sticky notes and basically elicited all of it. I was like, that is amazing. You guys really know what you're doing here. Um, so if you could kind of sticky note what a new world would be, like an improved world, and whether it's things that we do culturally, whether it's different ways of being, understanding, one of the things that I'm passionate about is just education, you know, putting in some of these things like mindfulness training, um, psychology, you know, whether it's neuroscience and psychotherapy, what we teach the kids to everyone uh, uh, across the planet. What things, if any, would you um, hope that we shift toward? Well, I hope that we shift towards an awareness of our actions and their implications. So, you know, environmentalism was something that most people could get on board with, but some people still couldn't feel the pain of it. They still couldn't see the implication of their actions. And now that we have something that made the implications of one action so obvious, I hope that that rolls into other spheres. Um, so I hope we get better environmental habits and part of being in, in quarantine has actually improved those environmental habits because it's harder to go shopping. It's harder to buy things. It's harder to go places. You know, we've, I know for myself, it's harder to get an Amazon box now. It takes a month. So I think three or four times before I purchase whatever it is that I'm going to purchase. And so it's created a new set of habits. Family is another habit that it's created. For me, you know, even being incredibly mindful, I still went to work and wasn't spending time with my kid because I was away at work. And then I would come home and I would have two hours um, and I'd make the best of all of the time, but it was still shifted. It was, I was elsewhere. And now that I'm in the house with my kid 
24 hours a day, I have had some of the most extraordinary experiences I've, I've ever had in motherhood. It's amazing. And so we're recognizing the value of being there and with our families. We're recognizing the value of calling and connecting to others. You know, I've had conversations with people I haven't spoken to in years when we're now able to FaceTime because you just think about someone and you call them because now it's a habit that we've built. We are supposed to reach out to one another. We're supposed to try to connect. They're habits of helping others. There's a group in Toronto called Caremongering Toronto where you, anybody who needs help posts and there are a lot of posts and you then hop on and provide whatever resources you have. There is a situation a couple of weeks ago where there was a single mom who got liked out of her bank account and other people vouched for her that it wasn't a scam. And so um, I said, hey, I've got some stuff for you. I private messaged her. I, I gave her some money. I pulled some groceries off of my shelf that were you know, sterile and clean. A second person came and picked them up. None of us had ever met before, dropped them off at her doorstep. And you know, she received money and food that she needed. And everybody in the process felt amazing for it and then went back to the network and did it again. You know, We're providing each other opportunities to help and help and help in ways that we've never done so before. I think we're also providing opportunities to recognize the value of meditation and calming down and managing anxiety and managing fear because we haven't really had to deal with this level of experiential sensation, emotion before. And so these kinds of tools that, you know, you and I have been talking about for a really long time become far more valuable at this moment. Um, and I think people are much more open to hearing it and establishing these practices and bringing them on because we so desperately need them now. So when I look at a world of the future, it is a world in which we are more connected, more aware and more caring of one another, more aware of the implications of our actions. We're taking more responsibility for our own feelings and staying calm. We are valuing the time that we spend on our families and saying no to things that don't matter. Do you know how many things we've all said no to for the last little while because relative to the pandemic or having to care for your kid, it just didn't matter? And this is the first time in the world where everybody kind of understands that somebody's probably going to have to drop something that they think doesn't matter and it's okay. You know, we previously got caught up in this web of obligations of thinking I need to do this thing that probably doesn't matter because somebody else is, you know, somebody else is expecting it and, 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 and. Well, now all expectations are off. You can actually choose what matters to you. Um, and I think that is really clarifying and empowering for people to say, you know, what is most important? Where do I want to be spending my time? I know, you know, financially things have changed for a lot of people, myself included. And there's just the recognition that I'll have a lot less money and that's okay. And it's like really honest and clear. It's like my financial situation has changed. The stock market changed. That's okay. That is complete. That is you know, so long as I can put food on my table, that is really what matters. And you don't have to have, you don't have to have more. You just have to have just enough. And that is okay. And one thing that's allowed that sense of okayness is our government. You know, governments all over the world are stepping in and providing for their people. We're finally seeing like the universal social security nets that we all wished existed. Here in Canada, you know, anybody who has lost their job or anybody who has lost their income opportunity gets $2,000 per month per person. If you're, you know, a couple, that's $4,000 a month. That's not a ton of money, but it definitely pays your rent and food, you know, and, and landlords are also being forgiving. If you can't pay your rent, your landlord will work with you because there's nothing else that they can do. We are all in this together. And so we're all recognizing what's important what we need, what the minimums are, and being okay with what is, which is huge. And I might be rambling here for a moment, but I have to bring in one more thing, which is gratitude. You know, as things get taken away from you, you really begin to appreciate them. I ordered takeout for the first time in a few weeks, and it tasted so delicious, I couldn't tell you. I have frozen cherries in my freezer, and you know, as I eat them, I'm grateful, I'm almost crying. It's like, you know, these things that you might have taken for granted before, when they're precious, are truly precious. And that's how precious they are all the time. And so those little tastes of gratitude, of appreciation of the preciousness of life, are things to savor and remember and hold on to and come back to over and over and over again as we live their lives, our lives that are so filled with moments to appreciate. 
even throughout the darkness. Wow, beautifully put. You can feel free to rant anytime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really amazing. Well, I hope, you know, I hope that uh, there's a fraction of people anyway that can deal with the loss financially as, as you have. And I feel like it's part of the practice and why you're inspired to do Muse and kind of bring that to the world because you understand those benefits. And I think that's where that training comes in. It's you're in an experience now and that training has allowed you to be able to adapt to such change in, uh, in an empowering view because there literally is nothing that you can do about it um, at this point. And so what is the most powerful perspective that you can have in this situation? You know, you can, it's okay to be upset and it's okay to be worried. But as you said at the beginning, don't stay there because if you stay there, then you're just going to kind of fester in it and you're not going to be able to think about solutions. You're not going to be able to get to a point of gratitude and, I hope people understand that idea of enough. You know, I've been interviewing two Native American elders on a panel. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Clifford Mahoudi was saying, who's a, a Zuni elder, was just talking about, you know, greed. And he said, you know, this is one of the things that he's seen as a culture. He's a, he's a former civil and environmental engineer. He's a scientist as well and a very smart fellow. And he just talked about, you know, how his elders had taught him, you know, respect your elders, respect your neighbors, respect the land, all these basic things. And if you look at what we're doing as a culture, we're not really doing a lot of those things. It's, you know, maybe we need a little bit too much. And if we're providing value for our fellow citizens in a way that we're doing business, that's fantastic. But if you're looking to create a product uh, or if you're looking to create a, a profit and then maybe cutting corners and then maybe not being as respectful to the environment as you could be or to people as you could be, that's where you kind of erode your integrity of, of what you're doing. And I feel like as a planet, we can kind of look at this and ask like, what do we need? What are we doing? What are our values and how do our choices impact um, ourselves, our family and the community at large? And if we thought that way and we integrated that, I feel like life would be better for everyone. And I love that you shared that example of the um, care monger in Toronto and showing the ways that people do care about each other. I think that naturally we are very caring and loving and compassionate people, but we have this culture when we're afraid, we're less caring. When we're afraid that you're going to attack us, we're less caring. And sometimes they, they put that over religion. Sometimes they say it's the way you look or the color of your skin. Sometimes they say it's a belief that you need to be separate. But when you put, I love those uh, images of just children together of all, you know, ethnic backgrounds. They, they never think about racism or anything like that or beliefs or what your parents might believe. They're just, they're just pure uh, loving kids. And if we could be pure, loving adults and allow somebody to have a different belief, a different view, a different way of being, um, and still be able to cooperate and collaborate, we'd have a very powerful humanity and culture. Um, I want to honor your time. I know you said an hour. I don't know if you meant like an hour, a little bit past or um, right on to. So I will either invite you to share closing thoughts so I can honor that. Or if you have a little bit more time, I'll kind of fire another question at you. I have a little bit more time, but on what you were just saying, so when, uh, when we're in fear, we go into scarcity thinking, we shut down, we create barriers, we create defenses. That's typically the reaction, but there's actually two stress responses, the one that's more recently recognized. So the original is the fight or flight, when you fight, flight, or freeze. And so situations like this cut, make you shut down. The other is tend and befriend. So some people in situations of stress actually manage it by tending and befriending, by reaching out and by caring for others. And uh, some of this, whether you fight, flight, or freeze, or tend or befriend is, you know, nature, nurture, and some of it can really be shifted. So for people who might be finding themselves at home isolated right now, feeling like you don't have any money and you really maybe don't, um, who might be at home depressed, it might feel like the hardest thing in the world to reach out to somebody else and do something nice for someone else. But that is the thing that is emotionally going to save you. That is the thing that is emotionally going to take you out of this hard place, let you know that you're connected into a network, do an active service for somebody else, and you are going to see it come back to you. I'm not talking about like some spiritual karmic way. I'm saying you will feel so much better from it. You will recognize that this network is also there to support you when you support someone. And once you tap into that network, you can also utilize that network for your own 
physical, emotional, monetary, et cetera, support. So if you are feeling depressed at home, stuck, any of these things, please, please, please go on to your local group. You know, for us, it's Caremongering Toronto, a Facebook group, just like type COVID help people um, and see who you can support or reach out to somebody immediately in your network that you feel might need to talk to for a few minutes, might also be feeling shitty, um, might need a hand with something. It will move your physiology out of the place that you're in. It'll shift your emotional state and it'll make it better for everyone. So if you want selfish reasons to help the world, go for it. Make yourself feel better by helping the world. It'll truly help. Yeah, I love that. That's it's so important. And you know, I'm reminded of again the teachings of the indigenous people that I've worked with. They, you know, Carlos Barrios, the Mayan elder, would always talk about um, how spirituality today is action. That you need to actually take an action. And uh, my friend David Lombear will talk about um, just do three kind acts a day. Go out of your way to do it, and don't tell anyone. And so we need to move into action. But when we do that action, we get a result. Like we could think about going for a jog, but unless we go for the jog, we're not going to get the endorphins. We're not going to get the body move. We're not going to feel good. We have to go out there and do it. And so it also breaks your state. You know, if you look at Tony Robbins, uh, you know, he's all about standing up and changing your state. Um, you know, you change your physiology, then you can change your way of being. And so you can get your butt up. Um, think about someone else. And that's come up a, a lot on the podcast throughout the years of doing this is that sometimes when we're stuck in our own mind, the best thing to do is just go do something nice for someone else because it's your own world that you're worried about. But when you start to think about someone else and you do something nice for them, um, you whatever's happening, you might be able to know uh, what it is in a neurological neuroscience type of way, but you feel good, you feel better, but that's our natural way of being. And so um, and I love what you said about the network supporting. And I feel like that is kind of the spiritual element. It's also natural, I feel like, and, and the way that it should, in quotes, be. You know, we should be supportive of each other. We should be helpful. But um, if we can move towards those ways of being, we feel better about doing it and we get out of our own rut. We get out of our own way and we open the opportunity for something else in the same way where if you are just super, super depressed, you're probably going to keep going over those loops. If you're really, really afraid and you're drinking alcohol all the time, you're probably just going to stay in those loops. So even if you can break it for a little bit, go for a 15 minute jog or find three people to say something nice to. Um, in that time of just saying something nice, when they send it back to you, you're like, oh, okay, you know, you can see that you lifted them up. And that always makes us, you know, feel good to help someone else. And um, so I love those ideas. I think they're super important. Is there, and I've loved this discussion, is there anything else that you felt like really important to talk about? And, you know, I look at some of the questions that I was sent about your work and book, and I know that you've done a little bit uh, with kids and teaching them meditation, which I think is so important. Um, you talk about female empowerment, which I think is so important. And I won't go into all this, you know, because I'm into the conspiracy rabbit holes too, but they talk about, you know, the, the change into the divine feminine or, or more feminine. And if you look at the world and how it's run, it's a very masculine type of way where it's like, get more, 10x, more things, you know what I mean? Create, create, create. And, uh, you know, the feminine style is just a little bit different. So I feel like feminine and female empowerment is so important and, and just that mindset. And so do you want to touch on any of those things or um, anything else you think that we may have missed or you'd like to discuss before you uh, go about your quarantine day? <laughs> uh, I think probably the last thing we should talk about is sleep. Oh, yes, yes. Because I feel like that's critically important for people right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've noticed that people are sleeping a lot less, um, which is totally natural. We're in a place where we're really scared. And when your body is ramped with cortisol, it continues to be active in your mind and body throughout the night. You lie awake at night thinking about these things. Your mind is ramping. And so it becomes hard to sleep. And when we do not sleep, our brain physiologically has difficulty the next day regulating our emotions. So as we talk about this anxiety and fear that we spoke about earlier, not sleeping exacerbates the anxiety and fear cycle, mm -hmm. which then leads to more not sleeping, which then feed forward. Sleep is also incredibly important for immunity, and we haven't really touched too much on immunity, but meditation can improve immunity by decreasing cortisol because cortisol downregulates your immune system. Sleep does the same thing. So during sleep, you have, um, you produce your T cells and B cells, 
um, which are your body's immune response, and you also release your immune factors into, uh, into your bloodstream through sleep. So when you short shift your sleep, you are kind of doing a double whamming. You're both you can both reduce the uh, production of immunofactors and the release of your immune factors. So sleep is incredibly important. And one of the greatest things we can do right now is give ourselves permission to sleep. We feel like we need to be thinking about these things all the time in order to protect ourselves. But kind of to go back to the beginning of our conversation, the amygdala will continue to present information back to your brain that it deems is important, even if it's not relevant for you at that moment, over and over and over and over again. It's just its job. And so when you recognize that you're just having the same information presented over and over and over again without actual solution, you can recognize that it's not actually helpful or useful. And so as you're lying awake, unable to sleep, you have the permission to tell your brain that I don't need to think about this right now, that I'm allowed to sleep that we are allowed to let go of these things and we're allowed to let go of this day. That as I am sleeping here, I am completely peacefully safe. It is okay. And as you do that, as you bring your body and mind out of your fight or flight and rumination and prepare your body, your mind for your, and prepare your entire self for sleep, you're able to have a deeper, more restful sleep, which is really beautifully key right now. I think that's really important. I'm glad you you brought it up before we closed because I actually also want to ask you another question about yeah. sleep. Um, I have seen that. A lot of people actually, I get that question as well. And I'm not a sleep expert and uh, I'm very curious about it, but I know some people get stuck in their mind, right? And they just run these loops and they're very stressed out. So they go to sleep kind of in stress. They have a very crappy sleep. Then they wake up and they're more tired the next day. And so maybe you, if you had any uh, tools, I know that you're working on something over there on sleep and, and it's a huge subject. So if you have any kind of tips when you're kind of stuck and you, you really can't get that rest that you want. And also what about too much sleep? That's been my personal problem. I can sleep forever. If I didn't have to get up, I would comfortably sleep probably 10 or 12 hours. And uh, I'm, I, I don't know <laughs> why that is. It's been something like my whole life. So I, I my thing is I don't want to sleep too much. Um, so is what's the recommended dose seven or eight I've heard. And, and, um, I'm just curious your thoughts on sleeping too sure. much for me. So that getting the up recommended, is the hardest thing. The recommended dose of sleep is eight hours of sleep. If you feel that you're really tired, it may be that you're sleep deprived in other times. So if it's hard for you to get up after eight hours of sleep, it may be that you've actually had a compounding of poor night's sleep prior and your body needs to, uh, ease its sleep debt. So as you don't sleep, you increase what's called sleep pressure. It's a chemical in your, in your brain, adenosine, that keeps building up as you're not sleeping. As you sleep, the adenosine levels decrease in your brain and your sleep pressure decreases and then your circadian cycle kicks in and you wake up very nicely. Um, if you have not slept for a significant period of time, you can increase your sleep pressure so much that it takes more than your one night of sleep to clear it out. Um, so it could be poor sleeping could also be depression, which may not be the case looking at you, but who knows? I'm not here to diagnose. Or, um, and if it's depressed sleeping, then you want to be setting yourself a schedule where you are getting out of bed, where you generate some fake reason to get out of bed, which is a real reason like brushing your teeth or taking a shower, and you use it to actually get up, get on with your day. For those of you at home in quarantine and not working the same office hours, I actually recommend you change your alarm. So if you used to get up at 7 a.m. and it meant that you were sleeping like seven hours and 30 minutes, not eight hours, turn off your alarm. Turn it to 8.30. Turn it to when, whenever was going to be the right time to you, for you so that you can actually go through all of the cycles of sleep that you need. Because in our working life, we short shift ourselves so badly. One of the most healthy things you can do is get a sufficient amount of sleep. If you're finding that's consistently more than 10 hours and there's poor mood associated with it, we might be looking on the depressed side. Um, but, you know, eight hours is optimum. If, if 10 hours is your baby, that's a-okay. More than that could become problematic, particularly if it's taking away from times in your day doing exercise. Um, and then on the tool side, so we've been working on this incredibly cool thing that we just released called Muse S. Um, so the Muse that we've been talking about up until now has been uh, one of these devices, Muse 1 or 2, um, with sensors for heart, breath, and body, and guided meditations. And with Muse S, what we actually started building was a tool that helps you sleep. 
So we recognized how problematic it is to get to sleep because your mind is racing. And so we offer these beautiful guided meditations that teach you to still your mind. And along with it, we create a soundtrack from your body that entrains you in a way that's designed to help you fall asleep faster. So you're hearing the elements of the soundtrack, like the lapping of waves is, could actually be your breath, the chirping of crickets, actually the beating of your heart. And as you start to slow down into sleep, as your heart rate naturally decreases, so too does the sound and the soundtrack because it's following your own body. And then it starts to pace it and entrain it, slowing it down even further in a way that's designed to bring you right into beautiful sleep. So it actually, it's not just like listening to, you know, a guided meditation or a podcast that you eventually become bored with and fall asleep. It actually guides your body into sleep. Um, and so that has been extraordinary and such an extraordinary tool to be offering at a time when people need sleep so desperately. That's amazing. Super cool. I'd love to learn more about that. Um, do you know if you have the Muse One, which I have, that it uploads? Or is it a software thing or do I need the new device? Um, so Muse S is its own standalone device. It's a right. soft band headband. We noticed mm -hmm. that people were meditating yeah. in the evening to help them fall asleep. Mm -hmm. So we actually made a device that you could fall asleep in. It's super soft and comfy and it comes with all the sleep software. So there's the Muse One, which you have, which doesn't exist anymore. You're, you're, you've, got a, you've got an original. Um, there's Muse Two, which gives you feedback on your brain as well as your heart, your breath, and your body. Um, wow. There's our guided meditation collections. And then there's Muse S, which helps you sleep. Amazing. Well, all of that was phenomenal. I'm so grateful for your work and everything that you shared today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we close and also make sure people can find uh, more about you and your work? Because this is really, you know, Muse is one of the things you do, but you do a lot of work other outside of Muse and for the world. So just thank you for all of that. And where can people find more about you? Thank you. So if there's one thing left to share, it's that wherever you are at at this moment is just fine. It's just okay. It's just okay to be here. There's a lot going on and we are all in this together and we are all in this to support one another and get through it as a society. And there will be ups and there will be downs and there will be more ups and ups and ups into ups that we haven't yet imagined. And so continue to find the silver linings, continue to give yourself permission, give yourself permission to be where you're at and give yourself permission to say like, hey, mind, body, we've spent a lot of time here. We can now shift. It's okay. It's safe for us to go somewhere else. It's okay for us to feel the sense of safety, which is actually real in here in my home. It's okay for me to take this moment and really connect with my child or my partner or feel just so good to be engaged in a phone call with a friend. It's okay to let everything else go. You don't have to feel it and be with it every moment. You can just, you don't have to feel and be with the fear every moment. It's not useful. It's not helpful. It might be there and that's okay, but you can also say, hey, calm down. I'm going to just pour myself into this conversation with my good girlfriend and just feel the beauty and the joy of that. Take each of those moments to keep lifting yourself up. And there are so many resources out there for you now. Um, we have a set of free guided meditations specifically for dealing with pandemic on fear and uncertainty and meditation. You know, there's tools like Muse. There's so many tools out there that you can start using to shift. And each time each of us shifts a little bit, the world spirals up higher and higher and higher. So I'm sending so much love to everyone. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And if they want to learn more about you, do they go to the Muse or do they go to your personal site? Yeah, the practical part. Um, you can find <laughs> out. So choosemuse.com is the Muse website. Um, and if you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram at Ariel's Musings and Twitter, Ariel.Garten. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your work and everything you shared and definitely look forward to um, staying in touch and making sure that everybody can check out the Muse. I've had one, an original. It's super helpful. I've used it to uh, have people um, who want to learn meditation. It's just, it's, it's just changes the game, you know, it makes it measurable. It kind of makes it fun. It does a lot of great things and you guys could continue to upgrade the process of, of how, what you guys use to help people learn meditation and just constantly improve it. So amazing thank work you. over there. You guys are doing a great job. So just thanks thank for you. everything and uh, appreciate you coming on. Oh, my sincere pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks guys for watching. See you later. Bye-bye. 
There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Ariel Garten. It's awesome to be back in the Muse world again. We did uh, a little bit of work a few years ago. I had Chris Amony. He was episode 19, I believe, another co-founder, co-creator of Muse. Really amazing people over in Toronto doing some stuff, um, doing some amazing stuff, that is, helping people meditate, learn about brain science and all kinds of great stuff. So... Uh, if you uh, want to check out a muse, you can get a discount if you go to bit.ly forward slash muse meditation technology. You'll get 10% off, I believe. They gave me a code. I'm definitely partnering with them as well, supporting what they do to get the world to meditate a little bit more. If you want to support the show, please leave a review in iTunes. That helps share the episode, become a patron, uh, become a, an Academy member, get access to the new Brainwave binaural beat meditation technology, sound bowls, really amazing stuff. Also the Soul Compass course and some exclusive training from past guests. It's all amazing. That's over at bit.ly forward slash mind body spirit 21. And last but not least, I am grateful for my new sponsor, Purium. If you want a gift card, it is Optimize Health. And if you just want to go direct, it is bit.ly forward slash optimized health. It'll take you to the website. They really have the best, most authentic, uh, you know, non-GMO, legit health products out there. And it is for uh, gut health, for cleansing, if you're doing fasting, uh, daily health. It, they really, everything they have over there is, is amazing. I've been going through their product list and um, just the science that they've done. Um, everything is a natural ingredient, no bull crap. And all the people that I love and respect and they really, really know their stuff about health. I had them check it out because as you know, if you listen to this show, I don't do too many sponsors. I want to make sure it's absolutely legit. I've had so many crappy opportunities that would pay me money, but I didn't believe in the product and definitely believe in what they're doing over there. Uh, Dave Sandoval, the founder, Troy Casey's been on the show and uh, it's amazing stuff. So you can get a free $50 gift card. Just go to bit.ly forward slash optimized health. It'll take you right there. You can shop around and just use optimize health without the D to get your discount. So it's a bit confusing, but uh, we'll sort it out. I'll try to figure out how to make it less confusing soon, but it's good to be back in the saddle. I appreciate you guys. I hope you're well and look forward to uh, seeing you again in the next episode.